0: 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5, verse number 23 is where we'll pick up our reading. The word of God says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord Jesus, or by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now, in these six verses, we have the closing statements of the Apostle Paul uh, to the church at Thessalonica in this first epistle. And I would remind you that the theme of 1 Thessalonians has been the rapture of the church. That theme will be picked up again uh, and expanded upon in 2 Thessalonians. But understanding that context is key to understanding a little bit of the sort of impact and power of what Paul is saying in these closing statements. And he lists for us a few simple thoughts that I want to share before we move on. The first thing we see in verse 23 is a parting intercession. He says, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. He's interceding on their behalf. He says, I pray God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember last week, each of these sort of uh, statements, these, these exhortations could really almost be started with the phrase, Jesus is coming, lending a sense of urgency to what's being said. And so in this parting intercession, we could make these comments. Jesus is coming. We need to keep ourselves in spotless integrity in view of our meeting with Him in the air. Who would want to meet the Lord caught in the act of some shameful sin or involved in some squabble? The reference here to our whole spirit, soul, and body is interesting. The soul and the spirit which comprise the immaterial part of our being, are actually separate entities. However, we as human beings sometimes have trouble distinguishing between them, although the distinction is clear to God. Man is of a higher order of creation than the animals, just as the animals are a higher order of creation than the plants and plants than minerals. Angels are higher still in the order of things. The higher animals, like men, have bodies and souls. In an animal, the governing principle of behavior is instinct. An animal does what it does because it is what it is. Each kind is locked into its own particular behavior pattern. In man, the soul embraces the intellect, the emotions, and the will. Since the fall, conscience, the inner knowledge of right and wrong, has been added. God, however, has given to people something that he gave to no animal. A spirit, the spirit of man, Proverbs chapter 20 says, is the candle of the Lord. In the case of human beings, the spirit makes us God conscious. Before the fall, the human spirit seems to have been inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Thus, in the case of people, the governing principle was not instinct, but an intelligent, emotional and volitional cooperation of soul and spirit with the indwelling Holy Spirit. The body was the vehicle for expressing human life in terms of our physical environment and our nature. The fall of man has ruined all that. The Holy Spirit now applies the word of God to man's conscience to awaken him in a conviction of his sin and utter lostness. The same inspired word shows that the blood of Christ alone can cleanse from sin. When we accept Christ as Savior, the blood of Christ cleanses us and the Holy Spirit quickens us, returns to take up his abode in us and turns our bodies into God's temple. The redemptive process has not yet been consummated by the redemption of our bodies. So we are under constant attack from our three cardinal foes, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Hence the need that Paul expressed here that the very God of peace sanctify us wholly and that our spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless until the day of the Lord's return. We're a triune, tripartite being. Then we see a parting proclamation. He says, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. There is no possibility of a truly saved and regenerated persons ever being lost again. God is faithful. He keeps His Word. When He called us, He knew all about us and took everything into account, including the fact of our personally trusting Christ as Savior and Lord. As Paul has said elsewhere, for whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, then He also called. And whom He called, then He also justified. And whom He justified, then He also glorified. All of the verbs in this passage are in the past tense. In other words, it is already settled in heaven. We need have no doubt that he will do it, as Paul says. Our eternal security is settled beyond all question because it's predicated on, based on, the faithfulness of God. We then see in verse 25 a parting supplication. He says, Brethren, pray for us. Paul was a great believer in prayer. He had just prayed for them. Now he asked them to pray for him. He wanted them to have a share in what was being accomplished at Corinth, where he was at the time. He wanted them to pray for his continued anointing of the Holy Spirit. He wanted them to pray that souls would be saved and a great church established right there in the paganism capital of the Roman Empire. He wanted them to pray for his safety, for his converts, for his eventual return to Thessalonica and for God's clear and unmistakable leading in his life. He wanted them to pray for Silas and for young Timothy. He wanted them to pray for him. If Paul were to have set out all his prayer requests, probably the world itself would scarce have held all the prayer books he could have written. But he contents himself with just a brief statement. He says, brethren, pray for us. And let me just make this passing statement. Man, if Paul needed prayer, then surely you and I need prayer in our line. We see then a parting salutation. He says, greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. My pastor had somebody ask him one time, said, why don't we do that anymore? In the church. And let me just say, anyone that is deeply interested in that is immediately suspect in my mind. Amen. And, uh, but somebody asked me, so why don't we do that anymore? Why don't we greet each other with a holy kiss? He used to say the problem is people couldn't keep it holy anymore. Amen. Uh, it's not a common, uh, it's not a common interaction anymore. We could maybe, uh, maybe communicate this same spirit with this phrase. Give a hearty handshake at all the brethren that are around you. Uh, In other words, Paul wished that he could have been there to shake their hands himself, to grasp them, to hug them, to communicate his love for them. The gospel makes all men equal. If Paul had been there, he would have left nobody out. He would have greeted each one personally, regardless of rank, in the appropriate and socially accepted way. And that, of course, is the spirit of it. He's telling them, tell everybody hi. Tell them I love them. Tell them that I care about them. Tell them I'm praying for them. We then see a parting intimation in verse 27. He says, I charge you by the Lord, that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. You know, for many centuries, the Roman Catholic Church did all in its power to keep the Scriptures away from the common people. The only ones who were allowed to read them were ordained priests. And even then, only in accordance with the non-existent, unanimous consent of the fathers is what they called. Rome's excuse was that the uninitiated world would fall in error if they were allowed to read the Bible for themselves. But it's interesting to note here that Paul had no such fear. On the contrary, he considered biblical, biblically literate laity to be the best antidote for error. He didn't tell people to put their Bibles away and just listen. He didn't tell people to uh, not study the Bible because it'll confuse you. I mean, I've heard of preacher. I've heard of Baptist preachers telling their people that don't study this book of the Bible. Don't study this section. All it'll do is confuse you. Hey, listen, you find somebody that tells you that, you run from them. That's not a good thing. Uh, we ought to be encouraged to read the Bible. And certainly certainly, we should be seeking out counsel about things and, and, and seeking to be instructed about them. But it's a dangerous thing when men... Don't ever listen to anybody that tells you don't read your Bible. Uh, they don't have your best interests in heart. Paul put the church authorities at Thessalonica under a solemn charge to ensure that this letter was read to everyone. And then we see a parting benediction. He says, "...the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen." Uh, we have in this that the letter has come full circle, and it ends where it begins. It began with grace in verse number one of the chapter, and it ends in grace. Uh, it reminds us that grace takes us back to the beginning. It takes us on to the end. From page to page, Paul has kept to the fore the coming of Christ for his own. He's now wound it all up with plea after plea for a belief that behaves. He reminds them that Jesus is coming soon. We should be walking and operating in grace. All right, turn over to 2 Thessalonians with me, and we'll go ahead and jump into chapter number one of 2 Thessalonians. And we'll read the entirety of the chapter. It's 12 verses. This would be a good time if you don't have notes, I'm not sure where they went. Somebody has them. They'll flag you down and put them in your hands. George has them back there. Uh, so let's turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter one and read this. Just 12 verses, we'll read it, and uh, and then jump on into this chapter. It begins this way. Paul and Sylvanus and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and that you who are troubled rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians had been sent on its way. Paul must have felt a certain satisfaction in having thus addressed his friends and converts at Thessalonica. He had encouraged them, enlightened them, and exhorted them to keep belief and behavior in balance. He had put in clearer perspective the great truth of the second coming of Christ. Expectation of the Lord's return was high in Thessalonica. After all, it was only about 20 years since the Lord had left the world. He had promised to come back. No date had been set, but His coming was imminent. It could be expected at any time. That it was to be immediate was quite another question. Conditions in both the church and the world, however, might well have heightened expectancy. Paul's letter had answered some of their questions, but now a different cause for concern had surfaced. In his letter, Paul had referred to we which are alive and remain." And apparently some had seized upon the phrase, taking it to mean that Christ would undoubtedly return in Paul's lifetime. And the idea had taken root. Added to that misconception were certain spurious communications, supposedly from God, that added fuel to the fire. The Thessalonian church was amazed with excitement. Uh, Some people were filled with fanatical expectation, even gave up their jobs in anticipation. Others were filled with fearful apprehension, after all terrible things were to happen. In spite of the positive assurances in Paul's letter that the church would not go through the Great Tribulation, some people were still not convinced. Their teaching had aggravated the situation, so Paul had to write a second letter. We can be glad that he did, because he tells us some fascinating details about end times events that are mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. Besides giving us a vivid description of the Antichrist, he tells us that the day of the Lord will not come until after two events take place. An apostasy in the church and an apocalypse, an unveiling in the world. The devil's Messiah must come and be revealed in all of his glittering glamour to have amused christ rejecting world. The day of the Lord, by the way, is not the same as the day of Christ, which is an expression that refers to the rapture. Each of the dispensations before had ended in apostasy, failure, and judgment, and the current dispensation would be no exception. The previous dispensation ended with the crucifixion of Christ. The current dispensation will end, for the current world system, with the reign of the Antichrist. Events today are accelerating the pace. Both the church and the world are heading towards the climax of the age. This second epistle corrects new errors in the Thessalonian church, and it also deals with many end times events. So in reading this text and deconstructing it, what do we find? Well, in the first two verses, we find two thoughts. The first is there is a greeting, and the second is there is a word of grace. Verse number one tells us who this letter was from. It was from Paul and Silvanus to Silas and Timotheus, Timothy. Paul begins with these words, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are virtually the same words which with, he began, with which he began his earlier letter. Paul, Silas and Timothy, the evangelist, the teacher and the pastor. Paul was the commander-in-chief. He took the lead, made the decision, set the pace, engaged the foe, and did the preaching. Silas was his second-in-command. He never sought the limelight, never broke rank, never tried to hurry the pace, never dragged his wheels, and he was never out of step with God's will. Timothy was Paul's assistant, ever at the apostles' beck and call, ever ready and ever willing. He would run here, there, and everywhere at a nod or a word from Paul. No task was too small or too great for Timothy. Paul loved him as though he were his own son. These three names spoke for themselves to the church of the Thessalonians. Then we see who it was for. It was under the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting the way it says their location, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the address of every believer. What a magnificent address it is. We've already noted in 1 Thessalonians uh, the significance of that little preposition in. in, in our text, uh, but it might, as well, uh, it might be well to remind ourselves of it. It denotes being or remaining within, with the primary idea of rest and continuance. It has regard to place and space or sphere of action. In other words, the believer lives in Christ, in God. The concept of being in Christ is common in the Pauline epistles. You remember he writes to the church at Corinth. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Uh, that is where we live and move and have our being, as Paul says in the book of Acts. It was the Lord Jesus himself who introduced the concept in his teaching in the upper room when he told us to abide in the vine, to be in him. And let us all remember that, listen, wherever we are geographically, if we're saved by the grace of God, we're in Christ. That should guide our behavior. It should guide our outlook. It should guide our determination. It should guide our peace of heart and peace of mind. No matter where we're at, we're always in him. So we see a word of greeting here, and then we see this traditional word of grace. He says, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul continues with this customary greeting. How easily and naturally Paul links the name of the Lord Jesus with the name of the Father. He just says it in passion. He took the deity of Christ granted, in other words. It wasn't a debate to him. Never to his dying day would he forget his first encounter with Jesus on the Damascus road. All of his doubts were settled in one blinding flash of light and a few words addressed directly to him by the Lord from heaven. At the same time, he, the arch persecutor of the church, learned the meaning of grace. There he lay, prostrate on the ground, the chief of sinners, as he later describes himself, with the blood of the martyrs on his hands and a warrant in his pocket to extend his depredations to Damascus. What did he deserve but instant death and eternal damnation? But what did he receive? He received grace. He was not only forgiven then and there, but also called and commissioned to be an apostle of the risen Lord. To take the news of Christ to the great Gentile world on the fringes of which he had lived all of his life. It was then also that he learned the meaning of peace. The turmoil that had raged in his soul ever since he had met Stephen and had a hand in his death was stilled at last. Stephen had said that he saw heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This testimony had filled young Saul of Tarsus with fury. Now, however, he knew that Stephen was a faithful witness because now he saw, had seen heaven open and seen Jesus. Stephen had prayed for his forgiveness, but now Paul was forgiven indeed. Peace had reigned in his heart. The war was over. No wonder Paul never tired of writing these two wonderful words in his letters. They just, to him, they simply summarized what the gospel was all about. Now, dividing this text, we find that the remainder of the chapter, verses 3 through 12, can be divided thusly. There is a word of uh, undiluted praise in verses 3 and 4. Then we find a word of undisputed promise in verses 5 down to verse number 10. And then finally, we have a word of undefeated prayer in verses 11 and 12. So what can we learn as we begin to dissect the real meat, the real body of this text. Well, first we see this word of undiluted praise. Verse number three, Paul says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet." In this we see what uh, Paul was impelled to do or compelled to do. What he felt in his soul he must do. He, he said he felt bound to thank God always for you. Paul could not say enough good about his beloved Thessalonians. His first thought, however, was to tell them how much he prayed for them. The word bound here means to be under obligation. It's used of a man who is in debt and who has to pay what he owes. Paul used the idea behind the word when he told the Romans that he was a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise to preach the gospel to them. He felt a similar obligation to pray for his converts. It was not only right that he should do so, but it was required that he should do so. Paul's prayers for his friends at Thessalonica took the form of continual thanksgiving. They were responding to the means of grace available to them. They were not perfect. Some doctrinal and practical matters still had to be sorted out. But for all of that, and for the most part, they were a joy to Paul's heart. He lifted up his heart in thanksgiving to God. It was as much an obligation to give thanks as it was to make requests in his prayer life. Let me just pause and make this statement here. We have a responsibility to pray for those that God puts within the sphere of our spiritual influence. Samuel put it this way in, in the book of First uh, Samuel. He said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. I think very often we view prayer as something we do as a favor to someone, but that's not how it's cast in the Bible. In the Bible, we have a responsibility. It's part of our duty to one another, to pray for one another, and particularly for new converts, as Paul is doing here. Pray for people who have been saved. Don't pick them apart. Pray for them. Pray that God would help them grow. Pray that God would help them develop. Uh, these people had issues, they had problems. Who amongst us doesn't? Paul says, I'm not going to sit around criticizing and complaining. If I see a problem with them, I'm going to pray to God for them. If I see something good about them, I'm going to praise God for them. But whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to do it proactively and do it for the glory of God. We see what he was impelled to do, and then we see what he was impressed to declare. He thanked God for three things whenever he thought of these Thessalonians. What did he thank God for? Well, the first thing he praised God for was for growth unstunted in their life. He says, "...because that your faith groweth exceedingly." You know, growth is evidence of life. Nobody expects a rock to grow. Vigorous growth is evidence of vigorous life. Developing faith is a direct result of occupation with the Word of God, of specific answers to prayer, and of increasing personal knowledge of and confidence in the Lord Jesus. Evidently, the Thessalonians were putting the Lord to the test and growing accordingly. He praises the Lord that they're growing. And let me just say we ought to praise God for the growth we see in people's lives. Even when it's not as fast as we wish it was. Even when it is not as tidy as we wish it was. Even when we wish they'd grow in this area before they grow in that area. But they grow in that area before they grow in this area. Hey, we ought to praise God that God's doing something in their life. I learned this in pastoring. You can spend all your time frustrated at what you're not seeing in people's lives. Or you can spend all your time encouraged at what you are seeing in people's lives. It's our choice. Paul says, man, I want to thank God that I see you growing in the Lord. So growth unstunted, And then we see grace unstinted. He says, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other abounded." Not only was their faith growing, but also their love. Love is what Christianity is really about. It's how Christianity expresses itself. Notice Paul's expressions here. He says, of every one of you, which takes in each individual. And then he says, and of you all, which takes in the whole. There's plenty of love to go around at Thessalonica. Love for God, love for each other and love for lost people. There was love for the church leaders, love for those who were at all of the meetings, and love for those who weren't at the meetings. Love for the old people, love for the young people. Love for those who gave generously, and love for those who were miserly. Love for those who stood out boldly for the truth, and love for those who were going astray. Love for those with charisma and charm, and love for those who had no personality at all. Love for those who were kind to them, and love for those who were cruel to them. No wonder Paul felt bound to give thanks for the fact that they had love for each and every person. They were unbiased. They were indiscriminate in the way that they loved people. So he praises the Lord for grace unstinted. And then for glory unsurpassed. He says in verse number four, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God. Now he goes on to describe uh, what it was that had prompted this. He says, for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endured. The persecution of believers at Thessalonica was first instigated by the Jews who hired others to do their dirty work for them. They had some of the Christians hauled into court and accused of high treason. Not content with that, they followed the missionary trail over to Berea and stirred up the mob there as well. Nor had their hatred and malice subsided. When Timothy went back to visit Thessalonica, this persecution was still ongoing. It was continuing even as Paul sat down to write his second letter. So he sweeps in this component of what God's doing in their life as well. Notice first off, where Paul glory. He said, we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God. Paul gloried in them and told other churches about them. The word that Paul uses for glory, glorified here or gloried here is in the superlative. The ordinary word means to boast or to glory. The word here means to exalt. It means to uh, glory in glory, in other words. Paul boasted to other churches about these Macedonian converts. He did so, for instance, to the Corinthian church when he described not so much their willingness to endure persecution as their magnificent method of giving. He wanted the Corinthian believers to know of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power, I bear record, Paul said, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves Praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering uh, to the saints. And this they did not as we hoped, but first gave of their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. We find that in Second Corinthians, chapter number eight. So he was bragging to other believers about what God is doing in their life. And by the way, you know there's a passage in the Book of Romans. I don't have it in front of me, um, but Paul talks about desiring to make Jews. Jealous over what God was doing amongst the Gentiles. He talks about how he wants to provoke them to jealousy and to emulation. And I want to be careful. We shouldn't never be manipulative in in our interactions, our relationships with each other. But there is a a pragmatic, a utilitarian benefit in talking about what God is doing in others' lives. It should stir us and prompt us and provoke us to want to do better in our own lives. Imagine how much we'd be helped as a body of believers if we spent more time instead of complaining about people's wrongdoing, praising about other people's rightdoing, and talking about what God is doing in people's lives. Could it be it would set a bar and a standard that would provoke people to want to do more and do better for the Lord? Paul certainly gave that example here in 2 Thessalonians. And then in a broader sense, in a dispensational sense, he gave that example concerning God's dealings with Israel in saving Gentiles, that one of God's hopes was that as you saw Gentiles getting in on the grace of God, they'd say, why am I going to let those Gentiles do that and me, a Jew stand outside the grace of God and instead provoke them to the cross of Calvary? So I think there's a a principle here that's worth noting. We see where Paul uh, gloried, but then we know why Paul gloried here. He says, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Evidently, Paul had been overwhelmed by not only their generosity at Thessalonica, uh, that was made all the more glorious because of their deep poverty, but also the spirit of personal commitment to the Lord and His servants which accompanied it. They had backed up this commitment. Their patience and faith in the midst of continuing persecutions and tribulations awed Paul. The word persecution points to the malicious hostility of others. The word affliction underlines the agony of body and anguish of mind endured by those being persecuted. The word for endure here is in the present continuance sense, indicating that the suffering was still occurring. So he's talking to people that are struggling, suffering, experiencing persecution even presently. And he was being bolstered and encouraged by their testimony of faith and determination. So we see in verses 3 and 4 a word of undiluted praise. In verse 5, he begins a longer discourse from verse 5 down to verse 10, uh, giving us a word of undisputed promise. Now, in verses 5 and 6, he's promising about how the Lord is going to make right. He's going to bring justice about. And in speaking about that, in verses 5 and 6, he speaks to the proof of this in their life, that God was already judging in their life, and that God, on a broader sense, in a broader scale, was going to judge the world. The next two verses, verses 5 and 6, deal with the time when God settles accounts, when He deals in judgment, first with the church, and then, fearfully indeed, with the world. Behind both judgments is the unimpeachable righteousness of God. Now, the first thing we see in verse 5, as he's talking about the persecution these Thessalonian believers are experiencing, is he wants to remind them that God is always righteous in judging saints. He speaks of their persecution and says it is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Now, remember, judgment oftentimes carries a negative connotation. And I understand why. It's not lost on me that when we think of the judgment of God, we're thinking of something that is distinctly negative in in tone. But judgment in and of itself is not a a negative thing. It is actually a neutral proposition. In other words, if we have been transgressed against and we want judgment, then if judgment is done, that would be a positive for us. And certainly if we have done unrighteously, uh, then judgment would be a fearful thing for us. But to them writing, uh, Paul writing to them at Thessalonica, he's reminding them that God permitting them to go through this persecution is an example of him allowing the world to earn the judgment that is prophesied to be poured out upon it one day during the tribulation. God is righteous when it comes to the matter of judging saints. Paul knew the persecutions and tribulations through which the believers at Thessalonica were passing. Let them take heart, he says. The crowning day is coming by and by. Meanwhile, though, God used their tribulation to develop their character. This world is our sphere of probation. The Lord uses all of the things that come into our lives to prepare us for high office in the kingdom. But what does it mean to be worthy of the kingdom of God? It has nothing to do with an entrance exam. Rather, it has to do with a final exam, an exam to determine where we will fit in the kingdom. The word used has to do with fitness. We do not get into either the kingdom or the church by our own merit. We get into the kingdom by birth, by virtue of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We get into the church by baptism, by virtue of the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, is not a second blessing or a manifestation of sign gifts, but rather is the operation of God whereby He places the believer into the body of Christ. It happens the moment a person is saved. Paul said, by one spirit, are we all baptized in one body? He didn't say just tongue talkers. He didn't say just the snake handlers. He said, we are all baptized in the one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink in the one spirit. The church is not the kingdom, although it is related to the kingdom. We're put into both the church and the kingdom supernaturally at the moment we are saved. In view here, remember, is the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I want to read this to you. This may I wish I could say a lot more than I'm about to say about this, but I think it would be beneficial maybe for us to touch on what the kingdom of God is. It has always been God's plan to establish a kingdom on earth. When he created Adam, he said that he would let him have dominion. Adam's calling was to rule the garden, the animal life, and and the administration of it. Later, presumably, he would rule the globe, and later still perhaps, if sin had not intervened, he might have ruled the galaxy. Everything has been spoiled and interrupted, however, by the fall. The concept of the kingdom came closer when first David and then Solomon ascended the throne. When the Lord returns finally to establish the kingdom, he will reign first in his David character and subdue all of his foes. Then he will reign like Solomon in glory and splendor as the prince of peace. Solomon's sins, however, spoiled all of that and sowed the seeds of schism in the nation. Worse still, they paved the way for the terrible idolatries and immoralities that in the end called for the suspension of both the northern kingdom of Israel and later the southern kingdom of Judah. With the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the emperor of Babylon, the times of the Gentiles began, and kingdom hopes were eclipsed. After the captivity, a remnant of Jews returned to the promised land, but the kingdom was now in abeyance. The repatriated Jews were subjects, first of Persia, then of Greece, and ultimately of Rome. The throne of David was almost gone. Then the king was born in Bethlehem. It's, by the way, a great commentary on the decline of those messianic hopes that by the time you get to the birth of Christ, all of the vestiges of royal lineage are wrapped up in a carpenter and a young woman named Mary. I mean, that was what was left of the lineage of the king of Israel. But when the king was born in Bethlehem, there was a brief flurry of interest. Thirty years later, John the Baptist announced that the kingdom was at hand and sought to bring revival and moral reform to the nation. The king came, but they rejected him. He was not the kind of Messiah that they wanted. They wanted a ruler, not a redeemer. They crucified him, and Pilate wrote this mocking title for his cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The kingdom was now postponed indefinitely. Its spiritual aspects flourished in the church, but its secular prospects dimmed. The mystery parables of Matthew 13 trace the hidden fortunes of the kingdom during this age. Once God's purposes with the church are complete, prospects will again brighten for the establishment of the earthly kingdom. The church age is a parenthesis in the timeline of God's dealings with this world. The rapture of the church will clear the way for God to resume his dealings with the nation of Israel, dealings that he suspended soon after Pentecost. The nation of Israel has already been politically reborn. And this is a sobering indication that the church may be about to be removed. Once that has happened, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to reap from an utterly godless world a final harvest of souls before the return of Christ to reign. The king is coming will be the cry. However, the Antichrist will come first. And his terrible persecutions will purge the Christ-rejecting nation of Israel of its unbelieving majority, clearing the way for the Lord's return. Meanwhile, the church will be reviewed at the judgment seat of Christ. It will be made ready for its role in the coming millennial kingdom on earth. In view of this fact, Paul introduces here the thought of the kingdom of God and points to the judgment seat of Christ. So we see that God is righteous in judging saints and that God in setting up an earthly kingdom. The church is not something that is necessarily an obstacle to that. It is a parenthesis in God's plan. Understanding that perspective, by the way, will help you a lot dispensationally in understanding those parables in the book of Matthew relating to the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. The church is not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God does include the church. But the the kingdom is an earthly kingdom that right now has been suspended because the king is in heaven, he's been rejected. There's coming a day that all that will be married once again. So we see that God is righteous in judging saints. Then we see that God is righteous in judging sinners. He says, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. God is likewise righteous when it comes to the matter of judging sinners. This verse anticipates the great white throne judgment. The word used here for recompense means to repay, to requite, or to pay back. It applies equally to things both good and bad. Jesus said that we should invite the poor, the maimed, and the lame, and the blind to our suppers, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed. Same word at the resurrection of the just. The word is also used to describe the judgment of apostates. When it says, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. You know, we feel instinctively that in spite of all the terrible wrongs and evils around us, that this is a moral universe. The wickedness, injustice, oppressions, and deceptions of men demand a day of judgment. By far, the majority of wrongs are never righted in this life. Our sense of justice, quite apart from the divine revelation, tells us that there has to be a day of judgment. God's Word assures us that there is. The subject, however, is not quite as simple as that. Actually, the following five major judgments are set before us in the Scriptures. Uh, for instance, number one, there should be a judgment of sin. As far as the believer is concerned, this judgment is already passed. Our sins were judged at Calvary. When Jesus died, we died. When He was buried, we were buried. When He was raised, we were raised. The unbeliever, by contrast, walks through life under the brooding shadow of the wrath of God. Uh, the book of John chapter 3 says the wrath of God abideth on him. God in grace stays his hand, but as long as the unbeliever continues to reject Christ, all the stands between him and a lost eternity is the beating of his heart. Then there's the judgment of saints. God judges his own people in two ways. First, he judges them as sons in this life. The book of Hebrews says whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth everyone, every son whom he receiveth. We stumble and fall, we sin and grieve the Holy Spirit, and we need to be chastened. However, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here it's important to distinguish, by the way, between sin and sins. Sin has to do with what we are. We are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Just as an apple tree is not an apple tree because it bears apples, but it bears apples because it is an apple tree. In other words, sin is the root. And sins, our behavior, our actions, are the fruit. Sin has to to do with what we are. Sins have to do with what we do. God has already dealt with the root of sin and He expects us in cooperation with His indwelling Holy Spirit to deal with the fruit of sin. His chastisement is part of the process and part of the proof that we are indeed His children. God judges saints not only as sons, but also as servants. This judgment takes place During the parousias, we have seen at the judgment seat of Christ. At that time, our lives and works as believers will come into review and our position in the impending kingdom will be determined. Unconfessed sins will be dealt with at the judgment seat of Christ. All of the loose ends of our life and all their myriad contacts and responses will finally be tied together. The judgment seat of Christ is just that, a judgment seat. Rebukes and rewards will be in evidence. Our standing will not be called into question but our state certainly will be reviewed. God's salvation is free, but his rewards have to be earned. There's also the judgment of states. God is sovereign Lord over the universe. He has his own sublime and infinitely inerrant ways of maintaining moral control over his creatures. Although his hand is seldom seen in human affairs, he rules over the kingdoms of men. Two prophetic focal points exist in God's judgment of states. One has to do with the Great Tribulation, when the nations will unite in their universal persecution of the Jewish people and their determination to get rid of the Jews once and for all. It will terminate when the Lord comes back in flaming fire at the time of Armageddon. God will use this time of terror to bring a remnant of the Jews to their senses and to a saving knowledge of Christ. The Lord's return will also affect the wholesale conversion of the Jewish remnant to Christ. The other focal point has to do with the great tribunal that will be set up subsequent to the Lord's return in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The criteria of judgment will be individual treatment of Jews during the time of the Antichrist reign of terror. And the purpose of the judgment will be to determine who of the Gentiles will go into the coming millennial kingdom and who will go directly to lost eternity, and particularly the standing and station of Gentile world powers during the millennial kingdom. There's also the judgment of sinners. God, of course, pursues His moral judgment of sinners throughout their whole lives. Often His hand is not discerned. Those who seem to escape all retribution for their misdeeds often pay for them in ways that we do not discern. The time is coming, however, when all sinners will face their sin and guilt, especially their crowning guilt of rejecting Christ as the great white throne judgment. That's when the books will be opened and even men's idle words brought to account. There will be degrees of punishment commensurate with privilege, opportunity, and relative guilt. Then there is the judgment of Satan. One of the great mysteries of the universe is why God has permitted fallen Lucifer so much power, time, and scope to work his dreadful ills upon this planet. He would have had no power at all over us if Adam had never sinned. The fall, however, delivered this planet and its people into his hands. Nonetheless, restraints, of which we know little or nothing, are placed upon him. His doom is sure. Just before the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ on this earth, Satan will be incarcerated in the abyss. After his final wickedness on earth, a thousand years later, Satan will be cast in the lake of fire. Such are the judgments referred to in Scripture, and we must not mix them up. One of the basic rules of Bible interpretation is that we must always make a difference where God makes a difference in our handling the Word of God. Remember, we are to rightly divide the Word of truth, not to rightly combine it, mix it up, confuse it, conflate it. We are to rightly divide the Word of truth. So we have in this a word uh, to those that uh, are persecuted as to the proof of God's judgment and His righteousness. But then we have a word as to the present. It says in verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. The word for rest is the word anesis. It has to do with loosening or relaxing, as for instance of strings or cords that have stretched too tightly. It's not simply rest from labor. It has to do with relaxation from endurance and from expectation. In other words, when we speak of people being wound too tight, it's the opposite of that. It's being loosened as far as relaxation. Felix, the procurator of Judea, himself a cruel and treacherous man, used the word when he was so convinced that Paul was the victim of a Jewish plot that he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty. That same word, amnesis. And that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or to come unto him. In other words, Felix relaxed the terms of Paul's detention. In describing his tension at one time in his ministry, Paul wrote this, When I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest, no anesis in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother. In other words, he was unable to relax. He says the same thing about his experiences in Macedonia. Uh, where he was bitterly persecuted everywhere he went. He said, when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, no anisus, but we were troubled on every side, without were fightings, within were feared. In other words, Paul did not pray that the troubles facing his converts might cease. He did not pray for a change in their circumstances, but a change in their spirit. He urged them to relax. But how do you do that? The word we find in his opening greeting, grace, tells them how. God will give grace sufficient for the occasion. In other words, we are to relax. And, you know, listen, I know that can seem sometimes a little patronizing and minimalizing and, and reductionist. You know, just relax, relax. But certainly you wonder how much of our stress and anxiety is related to our constant uh, re, re-toiling and re the, the same worries and troubles we have in our mind. Paul's not saying just magically feel better. He's reminding them that God is on the throne. And that the same God that had helped them at times of stress could help the people at Thessalonica as well. He's saying, remember that God is in control. Let all that tension be placed on God, not on you. That's what Peter means when he says, casting all your care upon Him, pre careth for you. So we see a word as to the present. And then as to the prospect. He reveals to us that a day of revelation is coming. He says, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. I won't expound on it, but He does denote here that He's coming from His home. It will be revealed from heaven. And He's coming with His host, with His mighty angels. The enemies of God and of His people are having their day now. The hearts of many people are being revealed. But another day is coming, and it's already on its way. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven, coming from His home, with His mighty angels, coming with His host. When the Lord Jesus opened the Scriptures in His hometown synagogue in Nazareth, formally to proclaim himself as Israel's Messiah, he read these words from the prophecy of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Do you remember that in Luke chapter number 4, verses 18-19? Luke tells us that he then closed the book and sat down. Every eye was on him. His fame had preceded him from other parts of the country. Interest and expectation was high. They knew the quotation from Isaiah 61 by heart. And they also knew that he had stopped reading and closed the book in the middle of a sentence. The rest of it uh, would go on to explain what God would do in that great day of the Lord. He closed it and merely said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He had hardly said a dozen more sentences when they were filled with murderous rage and tried to kill him. But fortunately for them, he had closed the book where he did. And fortunately for us all and all of mankind as well. Because it meant that God had decreed a dispensation of grace. Grace so vast that it could take Calvary in its stride. And grace so strong in its flow that it would run on for more than 2,000 years, even to this present day. The next words in the passage proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. The Thessalonians were living in an age of grace. Grace holds back God's hand from wrath. Grace reaches out to the vilest and most violent of men. Grace writes our name in the life eternal book. Grace gives us what we need to accept what God sends our way. Grace is the soil in which the fruit of the Spirit grows. But the book is to be opened again one day. And the last sentence of the prophecy is to be read. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. He says to give unto them beauty for ashes. The apostle's eye now sees the coming of that long-delayed day of vengeance of our God. He sees the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. The word for revealed is the word apocalypsis, an unveiling, and it's the word that gives us our title for the book of Revelation. It is at the end of the judgment age, covered by the seals, the trumpets, and the vials, that the Lord will come from heaven with His holy angels. He reminds them that there is a day coming that the Lord will return and vengeance will be poured out. It is a day of revelation that is coming, but it is also a day of vengeance. He says in verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul sets before us the essential nature of God's wrath. He says in flaming fire. Elsewhere, the Holy Spirit reminds us that our God is a consuming fire. When Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, presumed to approach God, censers in hand, but with strange fire, in other words, fire other than that which the Lord had commanded, required and given from heaven, there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died there before the Lord. When Elijah demonstrated to apostate Israel the folly of Baal worship, he did so spectacularly on Mount Carmel. In response to his prayer, the Bible says the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. The only thing that prevented its falling on the people was the sacrifice that Elijah had made on the altar. When wicked King Ahaziah sent soldiers to arrest Elijah the prophet, Elijah called down fire from heaven to consume them. In other words, fire is one of the weapons in God's hand. And it is coming again, the Lord Jesus will be robed in that Shekinah pillar of fire that is described in the book of Exodus and accompanied by the armies of heaven. Now, because one angel in the Old Testament could smite all of the Assyrian army, the assembled armies of the earth will stand no chance against this avenging heavenly host. But in very truth, the Lord will have no intention whatsoever of calling for these angels' aid. He intends to handle his foes by himself. The hosts of heaven will be present simply to demonstrate how utterly helpless wicked men have been to hurt and to harm God's people apart from God's mysterious permissive will. In the time of his vengeance, he will be quite able to handle his enemies himself. It's fitting that he should execute his own judgment upon a world that spat in his face, plowed his back, crowned him with thorns, nailed him to a cross, and has blasphemed him ever since. The word vengeance here means literally that which issues out of justice. It has to do with the execution of justice, the maintenance of right. It's not the mere revenge or vindictiveness that we so often indulge. It's not personal rage striking back in passion, but it is righteous retribution. When he comes back, it will be to pour out wrath in the form of fire on a world that has rejected him. He speaks about the essential nature of his wrath and then the eternal nature of his wrath. He said, who shall be punished, speaking of those that will be destroyed, with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The doom here described is terrible beyond belief. The word eternal is the word aeonios. It is used frequently in the New Testament. In 67 occurrences of the word, it's used to signify something endless. For instance, it's used of God who is eternal in his nature in Romans 16:26. It's used to describe our redemption in Christ in Hebrews 9:12. It's used to describe the resurrection of the body, a body of the believer in 1 Corinthians 15:53. And the word here shows that the punishment in view is not temporary but eternal. The purpose of such punishment is retribution with no thought of reclamation. Similarly, the word destruction is a lethros and it means literally to ruin. It's used to the man in uh, the church at Corinth who was guilty of uh, immoral sins and was to be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The wicked, then, at the Lord's return, will be handed over to eternal ruin. The Lord's living foes will be assembled before Him when He comes. Many of them will be at Megiddo. More will be arraigned in the valley of Jehoshaphat. As at the rapture, living saints are gloriously changed and caught up to be with Christ, So now living sinners will be grievously changed and hurled headlong from his presence. As the dead in Christ will rise to be bathed in the glory of the parousia and to participate in the splendor of the apocalypse, so the wicked dead, when their time comes, will be raised only to be convicted, sentenced, and hurled into eternal ruin in what the Bible calls the lake of fire. It certainly is a a severe and terrifying punishment that it describes. But he then goes on to tell us that a day of reward is coming. Verse number 10. He says, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. And you may be saying, you know, preacher, what's the significance of this? Well, I promise you, if you are a believer suffering persecution and feeling as though the entire world is preying upon your testimony in Christ, Knowing that the Lord's coming back, He's coming back to deal out justice and vengeance, and He's coming back to glorify and reward those that are faithful unto Him is quite meaningful. So over against their present persecutions, privations, and pains, Paul sets that glorious day when we shall be paraded before the universe to hear the cheers and hosannas of the angels. As Paul told the Corinthians, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You know, the angelic hosts have long wondered about the mystery of God's interest in, love for, and dealings with the human race generally, and the church particularly. When he laid the earth's primeval foundations, they sang and shouted for joy, Job chapter 38 tells us. They visited this planet on numerous occasions during the Old Testament age, and they crowded around the cradle and awoke the echoes of the Judean hills when heaven's heaven's beloved was born in Bethlehem in Luke chapter 2. They dogged His earthly pathway from His cradle to His grave. They are now servants of those who are salvation's heirs. They're ministering spirits, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. And Peter tells us they desire to look in to these things of our salvation. One day they will understand. The church will be God's object lesson to the universe of His grace, kindness, and wisdom. They have glimmerings of it now, but they will see it fully then. The coming of Christ in glory will make it all clear. He will be glorified in His saints an admiring universe will look at us and glorify Him. We finally have a word of undefeated prayer in verses 11 and 12. Paul closes this chapter in this way. He says, Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power. When Paul prayed is revealed in uh, verse number 11. He says, We pray always for you. Paul himself seems to have been overwhelmed at the magnificence of the prospect of this glorious day. And as usual, when Paul found himself overwhelmed, he prayed. Paul did not just pray when he was in a tight corner. I like this. He also prayed when he was in a bright corner. He's thinking about the wondrous day that God has planned and the wondrous revelation concerning that day of glory needed to be returned to God at once with prayer for his beloved Thessalonians. He says, we're praying that you would be worthy of that day. Then we see what he prayed. Uh, He prayed about the nature of their calling, that God would count you worthy of this calling, fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. What a calling they had. The Bible talks about us pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. To be the vehicle through which the universe of created beings will give glory to God and admiration of Christ. And that's what the Bible says in the book of Ephesians is our function and purpose, that we should be found to the praise of his glory. Oh, that God would make them worthy of such calling, Paul prayed. How could he do that? Well, by making them good, even as he is good. That's what he said. Fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. What a challenge to our faith. That was the sum and substance of this prayer. Paul prayed that every desire of goodness will be fulfilled and that every work of faith would be achieved. Then he prays not only about the nature of their calling, but he prays about the name of Christ. He says that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is going to be glorified in His saints. Paul has already assured us of that. We shall come with Him straight from the judgment seat uh, with it behind us and the apocalypse before us. Every spot, every wrinkle, and every such thing will be gone, will be His bride, fit indeed to sit with Him in heavenly places, able to bask in the fierce light that beats upon His throne. He is to be glorified in his saints. One way to hasten that glorious consummation is for his name to be glory, glorified in us here and now. Twice in this part of his petition, Paul gives the Lord his full title. He calls him the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, and the Lord Jesus Christ at the close of this verse. It's interesting that he gives that full title. Let me say a word about that. When we, when we deconstruct that title, the first thing we see is Lord. That's his sovereign name. The word that's used is the word kurios. It, it means owner. Uh, it carries the idea of lordship arising out of ownership. You remember the Lord said, You call me master and lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. He is our Lord. Then he uses the word Jesus, the Lord Jesus. That's his saving name. The name is derived from Joshua, and it means Jehovah is Savior. Uh, It is the name that we associate with his cradle, because when he was born, the angel instructed Joseph, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We also associate the name with his character, because Paul tells us, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We associate the name with his cross. When Christ was crucified, Pilate wrote an inscription in Latin, Hebrew, and Greek, and nailed it above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. We associate that name with his concern because when he went back home to heaven, he took his place on the throne of God and now he ministers there on behalf of his people. He is that one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is there to be our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We associate that name with his coming. At the time of his ascension, while the awestruck disciples were still riveted to Olivet and still staring up into heaven, two angels appeared. This same Jesus, they said, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. We associate the name with his coronation, for God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, it is a name of personality and of of his individualism. And then the name Christ is mentioned, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that is his sufficient name, the name Christ is. It's simply the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Christos has the same meaning deriving from Creo, meaning to anoint. The name embraces all of our needs. In the Old Testament, three people were anointed for their office, the prophet, the priest, and the king. As the Christ, he is the Lord's anointed one. As such, the Holy Spirit came upon him and anointed him at his baptism. As such, too, he announced himself in the Nazareth Synagogue. The Holy Spirit not only filled him from the beginning, but also was given to him without measure as his anointing so that he might be all sufficient for every need or demand made upon him. The three offices of the Old Testament era that were associated with anointing were epitomized in him. He was a revealing prophet. Never a man spake like this man. He was a righteous priest, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he is a returning prince the name Lord emphasizes his power, the name Jesus emphasizes his person, and the name Christ emphasizes his position. No wonder Paul saw in that name the guarantee that all of God's purposes concerning him and us will be fulfilled. He's yet to be glorified in his saints publicly before an awestruck universe. His name is yet to be glorified in us. We are yet to be glorified in him. The grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ has underwritten it all, Paul says, and this truth always seemed to occupy Paul's mind and heart when he took pen in hand.